Well, I tell you what, I, I wanted to make sure to invite you to this because next Sunday night from 7 to 8 o'clock, that's exactly what we're going to do. We're having a worship night right here in this room where it's just going to be an amazing time of singing songs to our God who we love. There will be a time of some guided prayer in there. So if you haven't been to one of these before, they're really awesome. And we, we bring our kids to it, so bring your family. Just an awesome time of worship. So I'd invite you back for that next week if you wish you were still singing right now. That's what we'll be doing. Because that last song that we just sang, I mean, that, that clings to my heart. That death was arrested and my life began. I mean, that's like right at the core of what the good news of Jesus Christ is all about. That when we sit and celebrate communion, the Lord's Supper together, that his body was broken, his blood was poured out for the forgiveness of sins, that he died so that we could live. And a friend sent me something this week about just that picture of death because all of us will face it if he doesn't come back first. All of us have lost people that we care about because they've gone on to the next life. And he sent me this that was kind of a, a picture of how to think about dying differently. And it's, the author is unknown, but it's somebody who's picturing each person almost like a ship sailing towards the edge of the horizon as their life goes on. And he says that what happens is, I stand and watch that ship until at length she hangs like a speck of white cloud just where the sea and sky come down to mingle with each other. And then someone at my side says, there, she's gone. Gone where? Gone from my sight, that is all. She's just as large in mast and hull and spar as she was when she left my side and just as able to bear her load of living freight to the place of destination. Her diminished size is in me, not in her. And just at that moment when someone at my side says, there, she's gone, there are other eyes on another shore watching her coming and other voices ready to take up the glad shout, there she comes. And the picture of dying in that moment, what if there was another shore? What if on the other side of this life, there really was somebody waiting for you saying, here she comes, here he comes. Now you contrast that with this quote from our good friend Sigmund Freud, <laughs> who is very confident in his life that he figured out a lot about who we are and how we function, and this is what he said about death, and finally there is the painful riddle of death for which no remedy at all has yet been found, nor probably ever will be. Now look, I'm not into wishful thinking and magical thinking, but between those two things, like let's just start here. So before we even get to what the Bible's gonna say about this, let's just start here. Which of those would you want to be true? That death is death, it's terrible, and there's nothing else, and we'll probably never understand it, or that there's another shore where someone is waiting to welcome you home? Our key verse today from Isaiah 25 is going to address exactly that. Because it says that God himself will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. Isaiah 25 has a promise of comfort for us today that death can be swallowed up forever. 
And so sometimes I hear people talk about, I mean, you've heard this phrase, live like you were dying. And I get that. I mean, there's something about that, like, you know, don't waste my time just surfing TV or something. Like, make the most of your life. And kind of built into that is something like live like you're running out of time, right? Like live like this might be the only time you have. But I want to tweak that a little bit. Because from the Bible's perspective, from Isaiah's perspective, if I know Jesus Christ, if I'm saved in him, if there's an eternal life waiting for me, what if instead of live like you are dying, it was live like you look forward? What if I live like I look forward to something? So I want you to see how Isaiah, the words of God through Isaiah, develop that in this chapter. Look at Isaiah chapter 25. We'll start with verse 1. It says, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things. Your counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. So right away in this first verse, one of the things that you have to notice is how personal this is. You notice he doesn't just say you are the God. He says you are my God. I will praise your name. Right, exactly what we've been doing this morning as we have sung these songs. But you can't miss that. Because it's so easy for us to, teach, to treat God as if he is detached. He set the world in motion and then we'll just kind of see what happens. Or to talk about God like, well yeah, I believe God is real. But part of the reason I emphasize this is because I can't tell you how many times, even right here at Horizon, you know, I'll, I'll go out to a baptism or someone will be telling me their story and, and they'll say like, you know, I think I thought I was a Christ follower, but now I know I am because I don't think I knew what it looked like to really have a personal relationship with God. And I want you to know that that is not like our modern gobbledygook, warm and fuzzy spirituality thing. Like it's right here. Man, the God of the universe is my God. I will praise him. And then you see that the counsels of old are faithfulness and truth, that everything God has ever done is faithful. And in fact, when you see that word Lord right at the beginning, you see how that's in all caps like that? That is a hint to you that this is actually the personal name of God, Yahweh. In the original Hebrew, that says Yahweh, his personal name. That you can know God on a first name basis. And so it gives examples of his faithfulness, starting in verse 2. It says, you have made a city a ruin, a fortified city a ruin, a palace of foreigners to be a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, the strong people will glorify you. The city of the terrible nations will fear you. And what I want you to notice here is, notice the tense, that his faithfulness is both past, you have done this, right? He took down the enemy, but also it's future. You have, therefore people will, nations will. Look how that continues in verse four. For you have been a strength to the poor, a strength to the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat, for the blast of the terrible ones is a storm against the wall. You will reduce the noise of aliens. Not like Mars, but like strangers. <laughs> the enemy from another country is the picture here. You'll reduce the noise of aliens as heat in a dry place, as heat in the shadow of a cloud. The song of the terrible ones will be diminished. And so these pictures of God's protection, God's blessing, and God's faithfulness are both past and future. And you can't miss what that means. Because it would be one thing to say, well, God said he was going to do this, and he did. He was faithful. And then we'll just kind of have to see what happens going forward. But the way the Bible always talks about it is because God is who he is. 
Because when he gives a promise or a prophecy, it is guaranteed to happen. You can say that his faithfulness, he was faithful and he will be faithful. We are confident of his faithfulness in the past because we saw it happen. We are confident of his faithfulness in the future because it will happen. It's not a wait and see with God. His faithfulness is from of old and it stretches into the future. So that when it starts by saying, you are my God, this is the God that we're talking about. And so the invitation of Isaiah 25 really begins by saying, make it personal. Make it personal with God. You know, that's why I know it's like the churchiest thing in the world, right? But you need to read your Bible and pray. <laughs> well, surprise, surprise, aren't you glad? I mean, I know you got an extra hour of sleep, but you still woke up early to be here, right? So that someone would tell you to read your Bible and pray. But listen, it is so easy to miss out on the personal relationship piece of this. So, so think, for example, let's say that I treated my spouse, right? What if I treated my wife the way we tend to treat God sometimes. Because right, I believe that God exists. I believe that he loves me. Um, I try to go to church at least once in a while. I think, I think he likes that. Like imagine saying that about your spouse. Like I believe that Melissa exists. I, I grew up in a family that believes that Melissa exists and my, my parents are like pretty religious about talking to my wife. And I believe that she loves me. And so I don't talk to her like every day or anything, but I try to visit her at least once a week or at least a couple times a month. I sing her a couple of songs. I think she likes that. I mean, that would sound ridiculous, right? Like what a terrible relationship you would have with your spouse or your kids or your friends if that's the way we thought about them. That the main thing I was supposed to do is that believe that they're out there somewhere and that they love me, but we don't talk, right? You see, the picture that God wants for us is he wants to spend time with you. He wants you to remember that if you're a follower of Christ, he is with you, not theoretically, literally with you, even to the end of time. And he wants a personal relationship with us. And I've really been taking that to heart over the last couple of months because a friend of mine is going through some incredible challenges in his life. And I, I can't share all of the details that I probably wish I could share, but I think it's enough to tell you that he did everything he possibly could to save his marriage because he believed that that was honoring to God and it ended in divorce. And now he's doing everything that he possibly can to make sure his children know that he loves them, but even more than that, that God loves them. So the days that they are with him, he's trying to read the Bible to them and tell them about Jesus. And in the midst of all of this, a few months ago, he got a diagnosis that is already deteriorating his body and will ultimately be terminal. And so as, as I've just been, I say walking through this with him, but as, as we've talked about these things, like I'm discouraged for my friend as I hear these things, as I pray about these things, as I think about these things. And yet he keeps coming back to me and talking about his faith, talking about the courage that he has because he knows God loves him personally. He can't believe that God is distant because if God just spun the world and then stepped back to watch it go, how could he watch this happen to me and not even care? But if God is with me every day, if God loves me every day, if he has a plan for my life, then I can trust him even through this because I know that he wants to bring good from it. In fact, the way that he's made sense out of that, that he shared with me and I wanted to share with you, 
was that he's been reading through Psalm 139 like every day. Listening to songs based on Psalm 139 every day. And so I wanted to read you just a couple of lines that he's shared with me. This is verses 13 through 16 that have given him courage. About how personal God is. He says, for you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works. And that my soul knows. When my mind can't track it, my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book, they all were written, the days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them. And so my friend has taken those verses and said, if that's true, if God knows every day, if he's fashioned every one, then he's not surprised by the divorce. He's not surprised by the diagnosis. God doesn't look at the events of his life and say, I did not expect this. What are we going to do? Plan B. God says, I'm with you. I am good. Trust me. In fact, these verses, if, if you've never heard this before, this is part of why for Christ followers, protecting the life of the child in the womb is so important. Because if this is true, he's saying that God knew him in the womb, but that God knew him before any of his days even happened. Like, not only does God know you from conception, he knows you before you are even conceived. This is a personal God who wants a personal relationship with every single one of you. I don't know about you, but I can't think of anything more encouraging, more life-giving, more important to me than that. That I'm not floundering my own way through this world, but that when I sing in this room, when I pray in this room, when I sit at home and I read and I try to talk to God, he's listening because he loves you. And so it is good to know that the promises that he's making and the comfort that he's offering are not only for the days of this life, but for days that are still to come. Because you notice in Isaiah 25 then, he begins to turn this corner. He says in verse 6 that in this mountain, which is often a way of referring to Jerusalem, the mountain of Jerusalem, the place of Zion, which is sometimes literal, sometimes symbolic for where we gather to worship him, that in this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of well-refined wines on the lees. So the picture here is that God has something in store for us to celebrate with us. I mean, you think back through the Old Testament, he's constantly commanding them, have a feast. Well, that is the kind of command I would love to follow, right? Throw a party, celebrate together, celebrate with God. And I love this picture here because not only is it that you will feast, but it's that the Lord himself, the Lord of hosts, will make the feast. And it says it's the best choice pieces. And then there's this phrase, wines on the lees. So I didn't know what that was. So maybe if you don't, lees is basically the part of the wine that settles out as it sits still. He's saying this is the best aged wine. It's had time to rest. That everything that he is laying on the table before us is the absolute best that God himself has to offer. And so the invitation is not only to make it personal, 
but God wants us to feast on the best. And guys, there are so many things in life that we feast on that are not the best, right? We can feast on regret. We can feast on anger. You know, we feast on money or worry about money. We feast on on lust or desire. There are so many things we feast on. He says, let's not even put that on the table, right? So think about this. You know, uh, Thanksgiving's coming up in a few weeks, right? So who is it, as you're sitting there right now, that you hope they're making the sweet potatoes this time? Because you know when you open the door, like, you can smell it. So here's what I don't do on Thanksgiving. I don't pound a bag of Doritos on the way to Thanksgiving dinner, right? In fact, I might not eat anything all day because if if Thanksgiving dinner's at 2 o'clock, I'm saving space for all that good stuff. That is like the best meal of the year. That's the picture that God is painting for you. Wait till you see like you think your grandma's sweet potatoes are good. You like your mom's mashed potatoes. The way dad carves that turkey. Wait till you see what God cooks. Like he created your taste buds. Don't you think he knows how to make them taste good? I mean, that's the picture here. It's, it's so personal. It's so fun. It's so celebratory. And he's setting it all up because he can't wait to bring us to that party. You know, it's, it's a lot like a wedding. If you've ever planned a wedding or planned this kind of feast where you're having hundreds of guests show up. You know, I remember doing that with Melissa when we were going to get married. And you're picking out what's all the food that you're going to enjoy and you hope your guests are going to enjoy. Right? And how much fun, and, and for us a little stressful, right? But how much fun it is planning that party and planning that feast. Because when you get to the actual wedding celebration, really the best part of it isn't the food, right? It's the people that you're celebrating with. The people who love you, who came to that wedding to share your joy with you. Right? Whenever we talk about our wedding day, we talk about the people that we were there. You know, we laugh at the videos that they left for us, wishing us good luck and God's blessings. And I don't think we've talked about the food maybe once since then. That was just part of the occasion to bring everyone together. That's what God is doing. In fact, you see this picture of a wedding feast all throughout Scripture. I don't have time to show you all of them, but I have to show you this one from Revelation. Because this fast-forwards us all the way to the end of time. When Christ returns... And those who have died in Christ will come with him. Those who are still alive will meet him in the air. And this is how it describes it. It says, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. So the lamb represents Jesus, our sacrifice that we just celebrated. And his wife is the church, those Christ followers. Then he said to me, right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the lamb. That the feast is all laid out and you are invited. But there's something in between us and that feast. There's something that gets in the way and threatens to make us miss our invitation. And so in, chapter, in verse 7 of Isaiah 25, he begins to pick up on this, that there's something that has to be dealt with first. So it says, And he will destroy on this mountain, same mountain of Jerusalem, He will destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all the nations. So something unusual is happening here because the one thing in the way, what is a veil that is spread over everyone that blocks out the light and brings darkness? Friends, this is a picture of death. And yet it says that he will destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering. 
the veil that is spread over all nations and all peoples. And here's how in verse 8. Right back to our key verse. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of all his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. And whether he spoke it in the past or whether he speaks it about the future, it is faithful and it is true. You see, this is the gospel message right in the middle of Isaiah 25. And when we read the New Testament and it unpacks this for us, we realize that that the wages of sin is death. That's the result of all of the ways that you and I have fallen short of God's perfect standard. It separates us from him. And because he is the source of life, all that remains for us is death. And there's nothing you and I can do about it. But it says he will swallow up death. You see, when he came to that mountain, when Jesus came into Jerusalem, when he sat down with his closest friends and ate what we now call the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, think about what he said. Hey, I want you guys to keep doing this. Keep eating this bread. Keep drinking this cup. Keep remembering this feast. Because I'm not drinking it again until I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And in between that meal and the feast to come, he went to a cross on a mountain in Jerusalem and died. And if he stayed dead, that is not that impressive. Right? I could do that. I I can die and stay dead. But he rose himself from the dead. Right? It's not just that he died to take your death penalty. Right? It's that he rose again to conquer death. To conquer sin. That you and I actually have freedom from sin. The ability to actually not sin. Like every time there's a choice that I have power to make to do the right thing because Christ conquered death. Christ conquered sin. And he dwells in me. So he swallowed up death. The idea is that everything good now is for me to feast on because he feasted on everything bad. That we feast on the best because Christ swallowed death. I mean, think about that trade. He says, I I have something for you. It's forgiveness. I'm going to take away your shame and regret. I have joy, peace, patience, kindness, love, all of the good things. I want you to start feasting on them right now. And tell you what, I'll eat death. I'll swallow death so that you can live. We feast on the best because Christ swallowed death. That's why you can feel the excitement building in verse 9. That it will be said in that day... Behold, this is our God. You want to know what the God of the Bible is like? For all the things you've heard about, well, I think God's out there somewhere. We find our own way to him. I mean, maybe he's like this and some people think he's like that. Hey, hey, look, behold, let me show you what our God is like. This is our God. Our God swallows death for you. When you deserve the death, God said, no, I want a personal relationship with her. I want a personal relationship with him. Forget about it. I'm going to swallow death. Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. 
I mean, it's literally the first song that we sang today. This is our God. This is what he does. He saves us. I mean, you could pull those lyrics right from this verse. And we wait for him. Now, that could be like, Jesus, how long is it going to take you to get here? Like, have you been looking around? Jesus, have you seen the news about Israel? Jesus, do you know what is going on in our world? Like, it's time, right? It's got to be time. And yet we also know that he is still drawing people to himself. And he won't come until every last person who will accept him has accepted him. So we wait. Not impatiently, but with expectation. I was talking to a friend this week who said that the other day he just caught himself thinking about what it's going to be like when Christ breaks through those clouds and comes back. When you look up and actually behold your Savior with your own two eyes. And he's like, I don't, I don't know, I just, I've never felt so excited in my whole life. Like, that's it. Like, am I like, I cannot wait for Jesus to get back. That's going to be incredible. One of the people that I think probably lived that most, that I just have seen it in her life, was my wife's grandma, Grandma Hawbaker. And Grandma Hawbaker passed away just last week. 92 years old, healthy and sharp right up till the end. And so we were back uh, up in Illinois for her celebration of life uh, last weekend. And while we were there, it's like, it, it's, it's always kind of fun because everyone has their own memories of Grandma Hawbaker. Um, you know, even my kids have their own memories of her playing the piano and they're singing along. And, and it's also fun to hear other people's memories too because you start to get this cross-section of who that person really was. And one of the things that just came through so clearly in every story was that she just was living every day like she really just knew Jesus and could talk to Jesus anytime she wanted and that he could come back anytime. So one of the, I think it was one of the cousins got up and shared that uh, Grandma had this really practical life advice. Like if it's true that Jesus could come back today, you know, how would you live? So she said you should always start with dessert because you never know when Jesus is coming back. <laughs> so, so I ate my cookie first at the dinner <laughs> later that afternoon. Yeah, but that was, that was just her. She was just fun. She just loved Jesus. And she wanted to make sure that her kids, her grandkids, her 59 great-grandkids knew that Jesus is the way to that feast. That his invitation is what has to be accepted. But what I didn't know, because, you know, I, I met her when she was like 75 or something. You know, like, so grandma's just always believed in Jesus, Right? So what was really cool was hearing her story of how she accepted that invitation. Because when she was nine years old, her family were not Christ followers. Her mom was listening to the radio, and the radio, I know. And there was like an ad on the radio for an evangelistic meeting. So for who knows why, other than the Holy Spirit is moving, her mom thought, we should go to that meeting as a family. And everybody agreed. So her parents took her and her siblings to this evangelistic meeting. I don't know what he said. I don't know how he said it. But what I do know is that all of them accepted Christ as their forgiver and their leader that day. And she talks about how driving home from that meeting as a nine-year-old, a nine-year-old, she just had a sense that life was going to be different now. Not because her family was always perfect, not because none of them ever made mistakes again, but because they had a new leader in their family. And when you think about those who went on before her, as we feel like we're saying, there, she's gone. 
They're with her Lord on the other side saying, here she comes. Here comes Carolyn. I assume they call her Carolyn and not Grandma Hawbaker. <laughs> we'll call her Grandma Hawbaker. Because it's not just wishful thinking. There is a feast being prepared for those who accept the invitation. And she was someone who knew how to wait, how to look forward, to behold our God. And that's what I want for you, to behold our God. Because I think sometimes we get so busy learning things about our God, that's good. Sometimes we get so busy just trying to do stuff for our God. I mean, that's good too. But sometimes you just have to sit and just look at him for a minute. To spend a few minutes in your morning prayer just appreciating who he is. Just thanking him for things he's done. And not only in your life, but all the way back through history and things he's going to do that he's promised in the future. To just look at him for a minute and enjoy him. Because then the last three verses of this chapter, sometimes it's shaped this way. Like it gives you all the good news and then says, and here's what happens if you don't accept that invitation. Like here's what it looks like for the person who resists the feast. It says, for on this mountain the hand of the Lord will rest and Moab, which becomes a symbol for those who reject him, Moab shall be trampled down under him as straw is trampled down for the refuse heap. And he will spread out his hands in their midst as a swimmer reaches out to swim. The idea is sweeping away. And he will bring down their pride together with the trickery of their hands. The fortress of the high fort of your walls he will bring down, lay low, and bring to the ground, down to the dust. We realize though that this is not the final word, right? This is the, now watch out if you miss this. And so it's almost like, so circle back to verse 1, read this again, because this is what he's offering you. You see, on both sides, it's a picture of victory. And, and that's kind of what you see throughout the book of Revelation, for example. That when he comes in victory, for those who reject him, there is ultimately a, a full and final death. But for those who receive him, to those who believe in his name, they will be called children of God, the bride of Christ, and celebrate with him at that feast forever. So as I thought back over this whole chapter, like one of, one of my pitfalls is sometimes I, I can fall into that thing where it's like, I'm learning so much. All right, on to the next thing. So I try to sit back and think, okay, like what's my takeaway from this? How would I apply, if this is all true, right? If, if that eternal life actually begins right now and continues even right through death because he swallowed up death forever, well, how do I live that out? What does that look like today? So one of my favorite ways to understand the Bible is to let the Bible define the Bible. And so in fact, if you flip over to 1 Corinthians 15, the entire chapter is about our resurrection because of Christ's resurrection. So it's 58 verses. I won't read you the whole thing right now. But I want to pick up in verse 54. This is not on the screen, so you, you can just listen. Because Paul is going to directly quote Isaiah 25, what we just heard. And listen to how he does this. He says that when this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. Have you felt that sting? 
The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And now check out how he applies it. Therefore, so because Isaiah 25 is true and because the whole thing was fulfilled in Jesus Christ, because we still eat that bread and drink that cup and proclaim his death and his resurrection until he comes to bring us to that feast. In light of all of that, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So here's how I think we apply this today. Here's how we live like we look forward to the feast. First of all, be steadfast. Be steadfast in your faith. You know, I know some of us are in the room. Some of us are watching this from other locations. If you're like me, I dip into things from time to time. Some of us are watching this six months from now. Wherever you are in this moment, if your faith is being shaken, be steadfast. Make it personal. Lean into God. Talk to him today. And don't move a muscle from the belief that you have in him. Be steadfast and be immovable. When culture tries to push you this way and say that God is old-fashioned and his ideas don't really work anymore. And besides, science has figured out this thing and that thing. Guys, God created science. God created law. God created good. Don't let the culture push you off from what God has said is true. And when temptation tries to push you this way, because God may not come for a while, and hopefully he's not looking right now, and, well, I know I probably shouldn't, but, hey, be immovable. Ask that spirit that dwells in you to hold you firm on this spot where you are not swayed. You do not turn from the right or to the left, to use his words from Joshua. But you are steadfast and immovable in your faith and in your God. And then you get to replace all of that stuff by abounding in the work of the Lord. Abounding in the work of the Lord. And that can mean a lot of different things and that can look like a lot of different things. And in one sense, this would be like the easiest moment to say, and so I'd like you all to take the card in front of you and fill out how you'd like to volunteer here at Horizon. Well, hey, that's definitely one of the ways, right? Because if you're a follower of Christ, you have a spiritual gift, at least one. You have good works that he's prepared in advance for you to do, to enjoy with him every day. People that he's put around you because he wants you to love them. So all of us, like when Paul applies this, he says part of what we do, we abound in the work of the Lord. When you get discouraged, don't be. It will never come back void. It is never in vain. Keep going. Keep serving. Keep loving. And so I will tell you that literally right after this, this was scheduled before I worked on this message. So we'll just figure this is from you, Father. There's a wire to serve upstairs right after this if you'd like to find out some ways that you can get plugged into serving. And what I love about it is that instead of just saying, well, we need like 38 people over here, and so it turns out you all have this spiritual gift. Please sign up. Uh, John Kirby, who leads that thing, I love the way he puts this. We want to help you find what are your skills, what are your gifts, what are your passions that we can put you in the place that God is calling you to so that you'll love it every time you serve. So you can literally walk out of this room and upstairs, and John will be surprised how many of you show up. But there's also one specific place that I wanted to particularly invite you to right here at Horizon. That if God has ever put it on your heart to serve with children or students in our family ministry from 0 to 18, we need you. 
We need people who love Jesus, who can explain that and how to live for him to a nine-year-old like Grandma Baker. You know, when I think about somebody's willingness to tell a nine-year-old the gospel and begin to teach her how to follow Christ, and that meant she had 83 more years of loving him and enjoying him. And there are, there are a number of different ways to serve that. So if you feel like, hey, I don't know if I'm up to that, I, I would love to just start a conversation with you. If that might be on your heart to serve children right here at Horizon. And so you can, you can absolutely just run up to me after the service. You, you can talk to me in the hallway. You can stop by the hearth room. Uh, Ryan Ventura is our family ministry pastor. He would love to hear from you and just, just chat about if that makes sense and how that might make sense. Um, we can offer training or whatever else you need. But I would love to think of that picture of the kind of generational impact you can have when you serve in that way. You know, and maybe, maybe for you it's something else. But whatever it is, I would encourage you, in light of that feast that's coming, let's live like we're looking forward. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus Christ, Heavenly Father and Holy Spirit, we thank you for your personal love for each one of us. Lord, I just pray that you would continue to encourage us with the truth of that feast that is coming, to encourage us with your love, to help us see where you've called us to be steadfast, to be immovable, to stand up for truth in your world and truth for you. And God, where you've called us to serve, to make an impact and invite others to that feast. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you, Jesus Christ, for swallowing death forever. It is in your name that we pray.